So I just saved myself $7,650 because I took Evan's advice. You would still pay income tax on that $50,000. And along with the $50,000 that you received via W-2, that would go through all the usual, you know, standard deduction or itemized deductions and all the various individual tax benefits. Right. But you would not pay any employment taxes on that second $50,000. Got it. You're listening to the Kniep and It Real Jodcast. This is your host, Seth Kniep. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, everyone watching today, I'm super excited because we have the opportunity to interview a guest who is an expert when it comes to tax law. Now, before you say, oh my goodness, this is going to be so boring. Who in the world wants to learn about tax when I'm trying to make money? Let me remind you, I, the young grasshopper a few years ago, would not have been able to say this, but now I can. I did not understand how important it is to understand how to legally save taxes because when you start making a lot of money, and if you're listening to this podcast or watching, that should be your ultimate goal, not in all of life, but I hope that you're wanting to make more money because we teach you how to do that. Your biggest expense is not your car, is not your house, is not staff, is not salaries, is not COGS, it is your taxes. If you make a lot of money, you are now in the 37% tax bracket, which means for every 100,000 you make, you will take 37,000 of that hard-earned money and you will give it back to the government. Now, I'm not anti-government, you guys know that, but I do believe in being smart. And there are so many ways you can plan out your future so that your money is working for you instead of you working for it. And for every person out there who says, ah, passive income, that's just a stupid pipe dream. Allow me to remind you that the IRS even has, they have a designation. They have a term for passive income. There's such a thing as a passive income entity versus an active income entity. Even the US government recognizes that term. So ladies and gentlemen, allow me to introduce you to Evan Kirkpatrick. Evan, thank you so much for being here today, man. Great to be with you. And just so you guys know a little bit about Evan, his focus, his goal is tax savings for people using practical strategies so that you don't have a ton of risk and headaches. It's all about de-risking. Um, I, I just want to throw this out there really quick, Josiah. And Josiah, thank you for being here as well today. Absolutely. So what do you guys think about when people say, hey, this person must be a fraud. He doesn't pay any taxes. Like, what is your guys' reaction to that when you hear that? I'm just curious. Evan, Josiah, what do you guys think? Because you hear about it. It becomes yeah. political sometimes. Yeah, well, I think it depends on the knowledge that you have because the average citizen does not know very much about taxes. All they know is what they need to pay for their employee job, and that's it. They just need to pay their taxes. But And so when they hear that from another person, they think, oh, you know, he, he's not, he's being illegal because right. that's all they know. So right. it really depends on the knowledge. Business owners, some business owners, know that there's more to, ta to taxes than just that. So I think it depends on the knowledge of the person. Right. Back like a few years ago, I would have thought, well, that's, I wouldn't like be judging towards them, but I would be like, well, that sounds shady. Yeah, that sounds shady. That doesn't sound, that doesn't sound legal. <laughs> right, right. When I, the first time I heard a, a podcast, Evan, on this topic, and they said, you could actually literally pay no taxes the rest of your life. 
I was like, okay, that sounds ridiculous. And then someone says, <laughs> oh, you're looking for loopholes? They always find a way. They always find a way. But then wait a minute, there actually are incentives that can reduce your tax liability at such a low level that there are some people who don't pay taxes. So I'm going to just ask the question, Evan, and I think everyone's going to really appreciate this. Here's my first question. How should my business be set up for tax purposes? What do you recommend? Well, one of my big things with tax planning is everything is, is specific to your circumstances, right? Now, for most people starting out these days, sole owner in a business, our go-to, and I have to preface everything I say when we talk about legal stuff, I am not a lawyer. Sure. I'm an accountant. Yep. Uh, and so a lot of things come into asset protection and things like that. Those are related to the things we do, but they're they're not tax-centric. Right. But most businesses these days start as LLCs, uh, as limited liability companies for a variety of reasons. Um, as a sole owner, if you're the sole owner of an LLC, you have a lot of choices in terms of your tax treatment. Uh, I refer to LLCs as chameleons for tax law. They can kind of be whatever you want. They change if you've got one owner versus two owners, usually in positive ways. You can make elections as the sole owner to be treated as different ways to potentially minimize taxes. LLCs are kind of the go-to because they're easy. Lawyers like them because they, they work pretty well for asset protection. They're not a ton of effort to set up. You can kind of do whatever you want in terms of your your ownership structure. You can change your ownership structure. You can change your tax structure a lot of times. Evan, if I just open a business and I just put in my social security number as my tax ID and open, I'm not an LLC. I'm a sole proprietorship. So I have big risk, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what a lawyer would tell you definitely on the asset protection side. And there's times where LLCs are treated for income tax purposes, the same as sole proprietorships. There's times where that's desirable. right? Uh, but we have the option to go away from that. Right. At a time where it makes sense. So when you talk about an LLC, can you give us what are some of the tax benefits having an LLC versus a different kind of company? So the main thing with an LLC is it has all of these choices. An LLC, a single owner LLC by default is treated the same as a sole proprietorship, but it can elect to not be. It can be elect to be treated as an S corporation in particular. That's where a lot of these go. Right. If you form as a corporation, a, a legal corporation is a tax law corporation. There's no way around that. Right. An LLC has the option to be a sole proprietorship. It has the right, if it has multiple owners, to be a partnership. It mm -hmm. can be an S corporation, a C corporation. I so can, flexibility. You know, it just if I'm an yeah. LLC, I have lots of options. Hmm. Isn't it, yeah. is it? Is it correct that like with the C corp, you have to have a certain number of meetings per year, and you have to have minutes on those meetings, and they're documented. Whereas with an LLC, you don't. But with an LLC, you could be taxed as an S corp but it doesn't mean you have to do that documentation? Yeah, the, I mean, the, again, that's something that gets into lawyer territory, but right. at the end of the day, LLCs, primarily these days for, for actual corporations, you see actual corporations set up for things that know in the long term they're going to want to be C-Corps. Right. Uh, which, you know, it's things like startup stuff like that that are going to have a multitude of owners. The corporate form is really useful if like, hey, I'm going to have... 55 different owners at the end of the day. Hmm. Because if you do that in an LLC, something that's treated differently for tax purposes, mm -hmm. there are a lot of headaches that come along with it. And in a corp in a, inside a C corporation, you can kind of do whatever you want. For most solopreneurs, you know, people just starting out, if you're not like a tech startup or something where you know you're going to be talking to VCs, so to venture right. capital at right. some point, the LLC is just kind of the go-to. Um, it also gives us the most options in the event of future tax law changes which definitely politically seems like it's there's a good chance of that over the next few years. 
We don't want to lock ourselves into something and have the ground shift under us. Well said. Uh, yeah. Right now in particular. So let's say, Evan, for example, I start a new company and I hire three people. Okay, I start a new company. I take your advice. I'm an LLC. I hire three people. Do you recommend I remain an LLC with pass-through income? Do you recommend I be taxed as an S-corp? And by the way, these three people, they're not contractors. They're full-time employees. Should I become a C-corp, a B-corp? What would you tell me in that situation when it comes to taxes? That's totally going to depend on, you know, what what your long-term goals are, how much money you're making, how much, um, how much, you know, who, are other people going to be owners with you in this? Let's say they're employees, they're not owners. Let's say we're doing 100000 a year, three full-time staff employees, each of them is on salary with benefits. The employees don't really change the game from a tax perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, the truth of it is, is that you could hire these people as employees, you could hire them as contractors, and it could make sense to be a sole prop in some situations, an S-corporations, or an S-corporation and others. You know, ultimately, the main players in terms of what we want to be for tax purposes in terms of entity structure are related to ownership, how many owners and what structure is the ownership, and how much money we have at the end of the day, and what are we going to do with that money? So when I pay and salaries so, to those three staff, those are tax-deductible expenses, like insurance, health insurance, yes. anything that I pay, the taxes I pay, the FICA. Okay, cool. So here's the next Everything. question. And feel free to jump in, just sign any of these if you want. Mm-hmm. If I'm an LLC, but I am taxed as an S-corp, can you help me understand the advantages in that situation? Because a lot of people ask this question. The big thing that tricks up a lot of people starting out, I mean, besides just generally not thinking about taxes at all, which comes up a lot. Like you need to be thinking, you need to be saving money, you know, saving money for taxes has to be built into your structure, right? Um, But the big thing that trips people up, it's not income tax because people are kind of used to thinking about income tax, Mm -hmm. but it's what's known as the self-employment tax, Mm -hmm. which is essentially a replacement for the Medicare and Social Security withholding that as a W-2 person that you have withheld from your check every month. Like half, like before you, right, right. And the employer pays half of it. Right. And then I, the employee pay half of it, but it's already taken out. Yeah. So you don't even think about it. And the employee, you know, and like you said, the employee pays half 7.65%. The employer pays an equal amount. Well, as a self-employed individual, you pay both halves. It's a 15.3% tax. Oh, fun. So my tax, so my FICA tax is just doubled because I'm running my own business. Yeah. And it's on net business income. It doesn't hmm. go through things like the standard deduction or things like that. Interesting. You know, if you, you know, if I'm a sole proprietor and I make a hundred thousand dollars in a year, mm-hmm. okay. For income tax purposes, I'm going to get a standard deduction. I might have other things going on, you know, itemized deductions, student loan interest, who knows what. Uh, but for the self-employment tax, if I have a hundred thousand dollars of net self-employment income, I owe $15,300 of tax on that. Right. Period. Regardless. Uh, yeah. And that's yeah. a big sticker shock to people a lot of the time. Yeah. The purpose of the S corporation is that there's a ways to mitigate that using the S corporation structure. And that's why we go down that road uh, by making the owner an employee of the corporation. Is there, employer, a minimum, is there a minimum salary I have to have to be an employee? Because wouldn't a lot of people say, ah, I'll just take $10 a year. So that reduces my self-employment taxes liability. You see what I mean? Like, how yeah. do we? 
There's a concept called, <laughs> called reasonable compensation okay. that underlies, in particular, the S corporation, where you have to pay yourself something reasonable versus what the market would pay someone in your position. Gotcha. And obviously, mm-hmm. we we want to be aggressive as we can on reducing that amount. But the IRS is aware of this concept. It's not something like you're going to, if, if it ever comes up to IRS, well, huh, I don't know what you're talking about. Reasonable right. Let's audit this chat. <laughs> yeah, you know, right. they're, they're aware of this. Right. And so there's a game to be played there. We, what we want to be as aggressive as we can uh, within reason, but they're, they're aware of it. So, so real quick, know, we, I just want to break it down for everyone just to and tell me if this is correct, Evan. So let's just say, for example, making a hundred thousand a year, owning my own company. And I'm an LLC, so which helps reduce my liability in case I get sued. I can still keep my personal assets. Now, if I'm making a hundred thousand a year, if I take let's say fifty thousand, and for my position and based on the context where I live and expenses, that's a reasonable salary. So it's obvious I'm not working the system. Fifty thousand as an employee of my company because I'm taxed as an S corp, even though I am an LLC with the Secretary of State based on the 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 state where I registered. So if I take 50,000 as my own income, I'm not only paying income tax on that, but I'm paying self-employment taxes, also known as FICA, also known as, what are the two, Social Security and Medicare, correct so far? Yeah. Okay, yeah. so here's, here's, I just wanna make sure I understand this correctly. The other 50,000 is not taxed for self-employment tax because it's the business's income. Am I saying that correctly? Right. In an S corporation, that income would still come out to you personally. Okay. So it's, it's what's known as a pass through entity. I'm with you. So mm-hmm. it, it confers its income to its owners. Right. So you would still pay income tax on that $50,000. And along with the $50,000 that you received via W 2, that would go through all the usual, you know, standard deduction or itemized deductions and all the various individual tax benefits. Right. But you would not pay any employment taxes on that second fifty thousand dollars. Got it. So I'm that's I'm saving now. So that fifth what you said it was fifteen point what? Fifteen point three. So fifteen point three percent of fifty thousand that I would have had to pay if I was not uh, registered as an or taxed as an S corp. I'm now saving fifteen point. I'm just super curious what that is. One point one five three times fifty thousand. So I just saved myself. $7,650 because I took Evan's advice. I'm going to take my family on vacation with that money. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's the sort of things that you just have to be considered for every new business. Right. Um, you know, once, once you get some money going, as soon as you get some net cash going, as soon as you start living off your business, Uncle Sam's going to come a calling. And it really, you know, I don't like having these conversations with people in April, right? And it happens all the time where it's like, <laughs> hey, like, you know, they come talk to me in March. I need to file taxes. I started right. this thing last year, whatever. Right. And then it's like, oh, hey, yeah, you you owe, you know, $20,000 in taxes. Or, because or the decisions whatever. you made six months ago that you didn't plan for correctly. So what would yeah, you say you didn't is save the money biggest, to pay for this. Would you say that's the biggest mistake new business owners make is they're not planning right? Because every time, I love this about you. Every time I ask you a question in our meeting earlier last time about taxes, you always say that depends on your plan, on your goal, on your setup, on your structure. Right. There's no static answer most of the time right. to anything. It all depends. Yeah, because yeah. because what it you know there are people that are thinking about this from day one, right? But like if you're looking at I'm I'm you know I've had a W two before and I'm going into business for myself, right? Okay, and I I, I kind of have an idea. This is how much money I'm going to make. You know, this is how much revenue I'm going to have. This is what my gross margin is going to be. This is what I'm going to spend. 
my money on, and then I get to live off of this. Well, if you're not thinking about taxes and you're living off your entire bottom line, or you know, you're planning to reinvest part of it, but you haven't considered, oh, hey, I've got to pay some of this, especially in year one where people aren't used to it, it's gonna be a real shock. Yeah. And, and it has to be built into the business model. Right. Josiah. Yeah. Take it away. Questions. What do you want to ask? Let's go with this one. So, Evan, what are some big picture financial concepts new business owners often overlook? So we've talked about tax, uh, and that's obviously a big one. But beyond that, you know, any sort of business, you're really kind of looking at three or four key numbers from the accounting side. We're looking at revenue, and people get obsessed with revenue. Hmm. Uh, it's like, okay, well, my business, my business made, you know, we had a million dollars of revenue last year. We had a million dollars of revenue. And, and, and can last I just be month. blunt? It, it, it's dumb because. It doesn't matter how much you your revenue is. It matters how much you are able to keep of the revenue, right? Is that where you're yeah. going? Yeah, because, you know, how much money did Uber make? How much revenue did Uber have last year? Interesting. Uber made no money last year. Yeah. Um, they don't. Yeah. And, and then that, you know, stuff like that's where you get into like, well, they didn't pay any income tax or whatever, and their owners are worth billions of dollars. Right. People have to say that. That's easy to say. But they didn't make money. <laughs> yeah. Like, would, they I would didn't love make, to ask anyone watching, would you rather make a million a year, and by make, I mean revenue, and not get to keep any of it, or would you rather make $250,000 of revenue a year and keep 100000 of it? What's the difference between the two? Planning. Yeah. And, and, you know, from ground up, like, okay, any sort of business, you know, whether you're, you're in e-commerce, you know, you're buying things or drop shipping things, you know, it's buy for X, sell for Y. In a service business, I buy people's time. Yeah. And I sell it not necessarily by the hour, but I'm selling it, you know, via charging people for services. Right. And that has to be built into my model. I buy time for X, I sell it for Y, I have overhead you know, I, I pay for this office I'm in, I pay for software, I pay for marketing. Mm -hmm. And then there's a bottom line that I get to, you know, I get to keep, I get to use to pay for food, to, you know, pay down debt on things, to go on vacation. There are some situations where you might not want to make money on paper. In other words, just for a minute, if we can nerd out on real estate a bit, Let's just yeah. say you you generate a million dollars in a couple months and you're like, let's just, yeah, a million. And you're going, oh my goodness, that means around $370,000, all things considered equal, is going to the government next April 15th, everyone's favorite date on their calendar. So like, what do I do? And I hear a lot of people saying, you know what? If you take that money and you buy properties and those property in your your Real estate business is acting as an active income entity where you or your spouse are a real estate professional. So you can actually take your costs and share them like business expenses of one business apply to the other. So I can take the costs of my real estate investments and with amortization and depreciation, which we can get into more specifically later, I can use that to reduce my tax income liability and yet still keep the majority of the money I made. I just turned it into a house or a commercial right. property that generates me income. Can you elaborate on that, Evan? Like I find that to be one of the most fascinating yet very confusing for many people topics out there because once you do start making a lot of money, when Uncle Sam knocks on the door, you know, you have to donate a couple organs and most people prefer not to do that. So what are your yeah. thoughts? And really quick, just to add to that. Yeah. 
for those who are listening, that doesn't just apply to real estate. Real estate has extra benefits, right? but that can also apply to just the average business spending money on things to help grow the business. Right. For example, if you have an Amazon business mm-hmm. or a consulting business, you can take that money, invest it back into the company, hiring, a really Facebook point. ads, Google ads, marketing. Yeah. And now your profit is zero or you lost money. But, but you, you don't grew have to your pay business taxes. and your long-term value you is greater. Way less taxes. You have a bigger market share. Your brand is right. stronger. Or what if you're starting a software company? A lot of people do this out of your Amazon experience and that's costing you, you know, it costs you $250,000 that year. But over here, you made $250,000 on your Amazon income. Well, boom, if I can take the cost of the, the software company and apply it to my income for our Amazon stores, I owe no tax. Can you elaborate on this concept, Evan? I, I would love to get your detailed thoughts on this. So there's a few different things going on in there, right? One is is what Josiah was saying, which is for our business, we're looking at net income, right? which is calculated. It's not necessarily net cash flow. Uh, it's starting point is net cash flow typically uh, based on, but based on what you spend, but especially when you're talking about operational things, when you're not buying, when you're not buying real estate and cars, right. but you know, we're spending money on advertising on people, things like that. We can deduct all that stuff. The, the, the tax law term is an ordinary necessary business expense, which covers very, very, very many things. Yes. Uh, most things that you're going to spend on a business, you know, would some other person consider spending this in your line of business? We can deduct that. Hmm. So number one is if you're spending money in your business, we get to deduct that. It's not just, oh, hey, yeah. you know, I, I bought these, you know, I bought these things for 70 cents on the dollar. Or I sold them for a dollar. I got to pay 30 cents. I've got 30 cents of income on each of these. Well, now you get to deduct other stuff. So real quick, I would just for a moment, don't lose that train of thought, but I want to park on that for a minute to make sure everyone understands. So for example, let's say Josiah and I take you to lunch and over lunch, we talk about the options for collaborating as businessmen or talk about using your services or vice versa. Can that count? And I think in this case, it's a 50% of it. And we can talk about that it too. It is a 50% in this case. Because it's a meal. Because that changed like <laughs> yeah. in 2018 or something. So 50, per, let's just say the meal was $100. Don't, don't get any expectations, Evan. Um, let's say the meal was $100. <laughs> can I take, so I can take $50 of that cost and count it as a business expense. So for example, if by the end of the year, for simplicity's sake, I made $100, 50 of it was attributed to a $100 meal. Therefore, I'm now taxed on the remaining 50 of my income, not the full 100. Correct. Okay. And and there's there's so many other things. One is mileage is comes that comes up a lot, especially, mm. you know, if you're someone that's local to something, you're dealing in real estate, something like that. Yeah. You're driving I a lot. I don't remember the exact rate for 2020. For 2019, it was 58 cents a mile. Mm. Uh, for for just driving around business-wise, as long as you keep track of it, right, then we get that. And that's kind of a non-cash one a lot of time. But but April fifteenth is almost around the corner. Oh shoot! I'm doing real estate and I completely forgot. Can I go back, make a spreadsheet, and just kind of put in the approximate miles odometer? What are your thoughts? I'm sure you've run into this before. In I'm general, sure yes. Of, okay, and, and that happens frequently. Hmm, sure. Yeah. Uh, the technical tax law is it has to be contemporaneous. And as a practical matter, the IRS respects reasonable efforts to comply. Gotcha. And so same as with, long as you're not making stuff professional. up. Ah. Yeah. Contemporaneous means can, can as you, Josiah explain that real, why real estate professional and what are you referring to? This is for anyone into real estate. This is fascinating. Sure. So the real estate professional is a tax designation 
So it's not a real estate license for a uh, real estate agent. That's totally different. So if I go to get someone to show me a house or a condo, that's not a real estate professional necessarily. Right. That's different. That's someone right. with a license. Okay. Right. This is a tax designation. It's, okay. it's not necessarily like a title. It's just on the tax paper. Right. Uh, what it means is you have to spend 750 hours per year, and this could change, uh, or at least and at least 50% of your time on anything that makes you money for your business. Hmm on real estate, on ordinary real estate activities. But if I have more than one property, I have to have a minimum of 500 hours per year per property. Exactly. Which gets really interesting if I have 500 properties, yeah. I will die. So. Yeah. But, but <laughs> well, the main... that, that part, that second part is not completely accurate. Help us out. That's why we're here. So there are two different components when we're talking about this. You talked about passive activities earlier. Right. In an individual activity, and an activity can be anything. It mm -hmm. can be your business. It can be owning a particular piece of real estate. It can be investing in someone else's activity. It can either be passive or active for tax purposes. Mm -hmm. If it's passive, there are restrictions on your ability to deduct losses. And in this, you know, we're talking about things we could have a three hour long, totally like completely garbage conversation about this, right? Podcast number two. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but there I feel are, like there are as restrictions. As we go through, there's so many topics. We could go deep on every single one. It'd be fascinating. Yeah, we're just but, touching the surface. But keep going. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, we're talking about something I have, you know, to, have, to be a CPA these days, you have to have essentially a master's degree in accounting. Yeah. Um, and I have one in, but the specialty in tax, and I've been doing this for a decade, and it's just limitless, right? It, um, it, it's like a Las Vegas buffet. I guess not these days. <laughs> but, <laughs> that is how a CPA would call it. It is a buffet at Las Vegas. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> with, with a passive activity, there are certain restrictions on how you can utilize net losses. Mm -hmm. And so any individual activity can be active or passive. And there's things about grouping activities, which is often a thing in real estate, all sorts of different stuff. There is a tax law presumption that all real estate activities are passive unless they are directly connected to like a trader business. Right. If I, you know, if I owned this office building, mm -hmm. then then everything related to that would be active for me because you're working in my, it. You're actively yeah, working it's in related it. Related to my gotcha. firm. Yep. There is a tax law presumption that all real estate activities are passive unless you are a real estate professional, mm -hmm, which right. is independent of individual activities. That's the 750 hour standard. Yep, with you so far. And then if you are a real estate professional, and then you have the right to essentially demonstrate that individual activities or groups of activities are active. Mm -hmm. There are ways to be active in individual activities besides spending 500 hours a year in them. Typically, it's if you have essentially ordinary repeated activity in them, if there's one, you know, if it's a hundred, if you spend a hundred hours and you spend more time than anyone else, there's, you know, I think it's seven different ways you can qualify as active. 500 is just like the bright line. Like if you spend oh. 500 hours on something. So 500 is sort active. of like the bare minimum per unit, but there's other yeah. ways where it doesn't literally have to physically be 500 hours of my time to qualify. Right. 500 will get you there pretty much regardless. For sure. But there's other ways. I got you. But this for is a real really estate professional, it is the one test that Josiah said. It is 750 hours Plus, it's got to be half of your time spent on money-making activities. So I can't like be running a boutique shop on the side, and that makes me sixty percent of my income. But this makes me forty percent of, of my income. Therefore, of your I time, would I would disqualify. Okay, gotcha. Of my of your time. time spent. Okay, yeah, good. So it's good. So if you were uh, vetted by the IRS, you would have to prove, and this is where it gets into the logs. Right. You need to have a log where you're con contemporaneously right logging all the hours you spend, describe each activity, and that way you could just show it up to them and be like, look, this is how much time I spend. And you only have so many hours in the day. 
just in case that happens. So real quick, guys, before we go on, just like, because the original reason we brought this up, can you explain yeah. why would someone who's investing in real estate but has an active income business, why would they become a real estate professional or have their or ask their spouse to do so? Right. The primary reason is because like uh, Evan was saying before, real estate by default, if you're spending time in real estate, it's a passive entity, passive income mm -hmm. entity. But let's say you have another business on the side, like an Amazon business or boutique shop, and you're also spending time in that, right. that's an active entity by default. Because I'm working in it. Whereas real right. estate, I just buy it and they send that right. monthly rent. And no matter how many hours you spend in real estate, unless you have a real estate professional designation, tax mm -hmm. designation, where you're logging your hours, real estate will always be considered uh, passive. So what it does is it turns the passive entity of real estate into an active entity. And now you can use your losses from real estate, your mm -hmm. expenses. Uh, on paper, if you lose money, mm -hmm. you can use those as deductions for your other business. Is make Evan, is there anything you want to add to that before we move on? I'm sure well, you got There's two big things with real estate, Yeah, which is why real estate is so tax advantaged. Yeah. One is that in real estate, so much of the time, real estate's about cash flow, but it's also about appreciation. Right. You're building wealth via appreciation. Most real estate, not most, well, sometimes most, it kind of depends on what you're doing. A lot of real estate, when you buy it, isn't cash flow positive right away. It's kind of like break evenish. By that you mean, just to make sure everyone understands, I am spending more per month than I am making per month, right? Yeah. So the mortgage I'm paying like mortgage is a thousand, but the rent I'm receiving is 800, for example. I know yeah, if you're looking example, at your yeah. wealth only by your checking account, right. you, you are getting less wealthy Losing every money. month. Yeah. Got it. Okay. But in real estate, you're making money in the long term because the value of the underlying property increases with time. Hmm. For tax purposes, that appreciation is not taxed until it is the property is sold That's awesome. in some sort of taxable transaction. So okay. in other words, if the property is 100000 this year, especially this is so true in Austin. Actually, let's start with 300,000. Mm -hmm. If the property is 300,000 this year in Austin and next year it's 325,000 worth, that 25,000 of net worth that just grew, I'm not taxed unless I sell it and receive that $25,000 as a paycheck versus like a like kind exchange. That's what you're referring yeah. to, right? Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, that is exactly it. You can you grow your wealth without having to pay tax on it at the time. It's kind of like a retirement account in some ways. Right. Um, number two is, well, I don't know if I'm spoiling your thunder here, but it's no, go for appreciation it. is, awesome. yeah. is, is the big thing with real estate, which is in real estate, unlike securities, you know, with securities, if I buy, a, if I buy a stock, you know, I buy a share of Apple, well, I might pay dividends. And when it pays dividends, I have qualified dividend income for it. And when I sell it, I Tax. have gain or loss. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, I have a, tax income or I get a tax deduction essentially for, you know, the difference between what I sold it for, what I paid it. But you don't get to do anything with that money that you've invested in the stock while you hold it. If you mm -hmm. hold it, you know, I've spent a thousand dollars buying stocks right now and I hold them for 30 years, that thousand dollars is lock boxed in there for tax purposes. Mm -hmm. With real estate, there's a concept called depreciation, which is if I buy a building, not land, yep. but if I buy a building, uh, something like that, I get to deduct a portion of my purchase price each year, mm -hmm. even if I don't sell it. So I can't, so that if I buy, I can't deduct the whole 100000 in year one. I can do a portion of it in year one, then another portion year two until it's completely depreciated, right? 
Right. So, and that, and then it changes what tax law is essentially your deemed purchase price. And there's a bunch of technical provisions, but what it comes down to is if I buy a house, you know, I buy an Austin house for $300,000 right now. Right. I buy my Austin 1200 square foot starter home for Mm $300,000. And um, 30 years from now, if I still own it for tax purposes, I will have essentially paid very little for it Hmm. because I will have deducted everything except for the lot cost over those 30 years. Now, the big thing with real estate in particular, why it's used by the wealthy and it has these tax, you know, this reputation for tax benefits, it's partly that, but there are also ways that you can deduct portions of it up front mm-hmm. uh, via a technique called cost segregation. Ah, I like where we're going. <laughs> this is building, I love, just real quick, everyone, you got to listen to what Evan's about to say. I, Evan, I think we shared this with you. We went through so many CPAs who either wouldn't talk about cost segregation or didn't want to look at it. It was frustrating. And when I first found you on LinkedIn, I was like, okay, this guy, he knows his stuff. This is so important when it comes to tax savings. So carry on. The theory underlying cost segregation is that a building itself has a long depreciation life, either 27 and a half or 39 years, depending on what it's used for. There are components of a building or a piece of property that have shorter depreciation lives. Obvious examples are things like parking lots and driveways have are depreciated over 15 years. Mm-hmm. A variety of things on the interior have five or seven year depreciation lives. Cost segregation is the process of taking a building or a property and it's splitting up that one big asset into smaller assets, particularly looking for ones that have shorter depreciation lives. And right now, under current tax law, and this may change, it will change at some point, but under current tax law, there's a concept called bonus depreciation. And what this is, is any asset that has a tax depreciation life of less than 20 years, mm-hmm. you can generally, not every single asset, but most assets that have a depreciation life of less than 20 years can be 100% deducted in year one. Wow. You can essentially, in I kind of refer to it as you can just take them and in tax world, you can just put them in your personal tax dumpster right, yeah. right away. There are some caveats to these to this. Cost segregation, it's not something you can do arbitrarily. The IRS does, does not allow that. Yeah, did you like to be, get a cost segregation study or something? There has to be an actual engineering report done. Got it. Depending on the context, there are ways for single family or essentially small residential properties, less than a half million dollars sorts of things. There are ways to do this pretty cheaply and on an automated basis. Mm-hmm. If you're talking about something like an apartment complex or a strip center or something like that, you're going to have to have an actual engineer come in and do things. And those reports can be five, ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000. Right. So it has to make sense for your individual circumstances. And that's right. part of what I do is, hey, we need to evaluate if we want to spend money on this before we do it, depending on how much it is, what your tax situation is, how long you're going to hold it. But there are ways, and particularly as Josiah was saying, if you get to that real estate professional level, there are ways where you can potentially create very large tax deductions that you can use to offset the income tax on other things you have going on. Right. And that's that's how, you know, depreciation, cost seg, it's all time value of money. Right. But if I'm borrowing deductions from 30 years from now for the governments without paying any interest, I'm going to make money on that. Oh yeah. yeah. Totally. So, and could could you explain a little bit on why it's called depreciation? Cuz you before you're talking about appreciation, and when I first learned about depreciation, I was like why is it called depreciation? Because isn't it going up in value? There's a presumption. Depreciation is, you know, when you're when you're training baby accountants, 
when when an accountant is in you know, or a business manager is in business school, depreciation is the first thing that starts tripping people up Mm. because it's not a cash concept, right? Mm -hmm. Depreciation is just the fundamental accounting concept of we have to account for the fact that most physical things decrease in value with time. You know, if I buy a, if I'm a farmer and I buy a tractor, if I'm an accountant and I buy a computer or a desk, it gets less value over time from use. You know, the the gears break down, the software gets slow, but Sears, the question House does the opposite. <laughs> it goes up. The, the so, price, yeah. and here's the thing, the price value goes up. Right. So what you're saying is it, the, the value over time goes down. So could you explain that difference? Yeah, so it's essentially accounting for the fact that, okay, this big asset, well, both tax law and accounting have decided, well, we're not going to just write off assets in year one. Although the Republican Party tried. Um, they wanted to <laughs> as part of the 17 law that happened. They wanted to just be like, you can just buy a building and write it off. Right. That's not the way the cookies crumbled. Um, so it, it's a way of essentially accounting for, okay, I have this big expensive asset that I'm going to use in multiple years mm-hmm. and it's going to go down in value presumptively to zero, which a building would over time. You know, like if you don't do anything to the right. building. True. The worst it's eventually, thing you can do for a building is not live in it. Cobwebs, yeah, rot, like, termite. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's eventually going to crumble into dust if you don't do things. So how do we True. account for that Those for accounting purposes? Costs. That's a good point. You have to pay for, for example, air conditioning. Keeps it at a nice temperature. Heat, cold, things like that. What if the roof gets, well, if you're living in it, you're going to fix the roof because you don't want to sleep with water dripping on your head. So this makes sense. So there are there is money you have to pour into the building to keep it livable. So does that answer the question why you call it depreciation, even though from a marketing or a market perspective, the value does go up, there's costs going into it. Therefore, we get to use that as a business tax write-off. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's called depreciation because fixed assets in general degrade with time. Got it. And buildings are just kind of special where they don't degrade because you put money into them. But tax law in particular is structured in a way where even though like for most things, there there are rules when it comes to, okay, if I make a big repair to a building, what do I do with that for tax purposes? Right. Do I, do I have to capitalize it as a new asset or do I get to just write it off immediately? And there are specific rules for different things. And, you know, there's pages and pages of IRS regulations, but we're allowed to deduct more stuff than, you know, like if I buy a house for $300,000, mm-hmm. I'm going to get to write that off over 30 years, putting aside cost second, all that stuff. And I'm going to spend money on upkeep and maintaining things over those 30 years. Well, realistically, I'm going to get to deduct more of that stuff over time than logic would dictate when I get to the end and the building is worth more. And this is why a lot of smart people, and you don't really have to be that smart once you learn it, right? Is to, they invest in real estate because of the value going up. I mean, simple example, you buy a car, and the value goes down. You will probably never sell it for the same price that you bought it. It'll always be less. You buy a house, you wait five years. If you live in it, keep up on the maintenance, the minimum maintenance needed. Even if you don't do some fancy upgrade and it's a pretty crappy looking house, you can still probably sell it for more in most situations. So this is fascinating. Guys, this has been an awesome conversation. Um, Before we go, and I think, Evan, you want to do this again? Oh, absolutely. Because there's so much more we could talk about. Before we go, I just want to share two things, you guys. Number one, Kirk... Patrick, P-L-L-C.com. Kirk, K-I-R-K. Patrick, P-A-T-R-I-C-K, P-L-L-C.com. If you want to talk to Evan and you are thinking about ways not only to set up your business well 
and structuring your assets in a way that is wise and to get your money working for you and to legally, legally reduce your tax liability so you can grow your net worth, you need to reach out to Evan Kirkpatrick. Again, it's Kirk, K-I-R-K, Patrick, P-A-T-R-I-C-K, P-L-L-C dot com. You need to go there. Evan, before we go, 30 seconds only, what is one advice you would give to everyone listening right now? When in doubt, plan. Have a plan for tax. Have a plan for your business. Know what you're doing. If you're working, you need to work with someone that understands taxes. When in doubt, talk to them before you do things. We can fix stuff before. It's a lot harder afterwards. Well said. Awesome. Thank you, Evan, for being here on the Jodcast. Thank you, Josiah, as well, for being here. And guys, I hope you have an awesome day. Again, go to kirkpatrickpllc.com. Just for the record, I'm not an affiliate. I'm just recommending Kirk because we believe in what he does and hope that you guys got a ton of value out of today's Jodcast. This is Seth Kniep, Kniepin at Real, signing off. You have an awesome day. Take ownership. Do something with your life that your future self would thank you for. Have a great day.